6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Major Prophets. See, the book of Revelation is all about things out of place. See, Israel, Israel is not in the land, it needs to be in the land. Jesus is not on His throne, He's on His Father's throne. And uh, the church is on the earth, but should be in heaven. So all those things get adjusted in the book of Revelation. So, uh, but we'll move on here. When you get to the passage in, in Isaiah that some scholars call the Holy of Holies, we'll call it chapter 53, although I want to highlight something else here. Many times, you have to remember that the chapter divisions were added in the 13th century. And, and they're very helpful. But you should also be sensitive to the fact that sometimes the chapters start too early or too late. Often there's a very key part of a chapter that really is the last verse or two or three of the previous chapter. And conversely, some major passages start a little after. So you should be, just don't take the, recognize the chapter divisions are convenience, but not necessarily inspired. So chapter 53, in a sense, starts with chapter 52 in the last couple of verses. And uh, it is an astonishing passage that uh, uh, in this quick survey, there's some places that we will stop and read it verse by verse because they're so significant, and we'll do that here. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And indeed, he will be very high. He was lifted up on a cross. And Jesus makes that point in John 3, speaking of the analogy with the serpent, uh, uh, the brazen serpent, and so forth. But then there's a verse. Verse 14 is a verse that the King James translators didn't feel you could handle. So they worded it not to be incorrect, but unless you look very carefully, you won't understand what it's really saying. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. What that is actually alluding to is that the abuse that Jesus Christ suffered at the cross, and just prior being put on the cross, was so abusive that he no longer looked human. He was so disfigured, so abused. We, I think, are indebted to Mel Gibson's book of the uh, movie, The Passion, because I, I think there's many things to commend it. Uh, it's a very useful thing. I know some people are critical of certain subtleties. I think that's quibbling. I think he's done us all a gigantic favor for lots of reasons. Not the least of which you can open a conversation with any stranger. Hey, have you seen The Passion? And no matter what the answer is, you've got a conversation going. But the one thing, there's two things that Mel couldn't do. One is he couldn't really communicate who he was. See, the crucifixion was not a tragedy. 
it was an achievement. But that's too complex to try to do in a film uh, uh, mission, really. The second thing he couldn't do, didn't do anyway, is to carry it all the way. If you think that was tough, if he had been even more accurate, it would have been even more shocking. And we have materials on that, the agony of love and so forth. I'll, I'll leave that here just as a passing mark. Let's go on. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then we're into the body of Isaiah 53, as it's commonly known. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's go back and take a look at that. Notice how often we are in antithesis. He and us. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See the antithesis going on here. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all. See the substitutionary. It's clearly he was in our place. And Isaiah nails this probably with more precision than all of Paul's epistles put together. But going on, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. One of the most astonishing prophecies in the book of Isaiah, well known to any serious student of the Bible, but I'll tell you something that may surprise you. It isn't fulfilled yet. That should shock you. I thought this was filled to the cross. In a sense it was, in a sense it wasn't, because what's being recorded here 
is Israel's awakening to that. This gets fulfilled when they confess their iniquity, as Hosea 5.15. This is the awareness that God is seeking in the nation at the national level as a prerequisite to the Second Coming. And we'll see that when we get to the book of Hosea uh, in the next session. Continuing this chapter, though, He shall see the travel of his soul, he shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He prayed for those that were with him. Twelve key points here. He comes in absolute lowliness, a root out of dry ground. He was despised and rejected of men. He suffered for sins and in the place of others. Who, what others? You and me. God Himself caused the suffering to be vicarious. He had absolute resignation. He opened not His mouth and so forth. He died as a felon from prison and from judgment, it says. He was cut off prematurely out of the land of the living. He was personally guiltless, no violence or deceit in his mouth. He was to live on after his sufferings to prolong his days. Yahweh, as most people would say it, or yod heh as some rabbis would say, his pleasure would prosper in his hand. And there would be mighty triumph after his suffering. He would divide the spoil. And by all this, God would justify many. Praise God for that. Isaiah 53. Let me tell you that behind this text are some surprises. Setting aside for a minute its lofty message, let's take a look underneath it. You'll find that encrypted in these 12 verses are all kinds of other words. Yeshua is my name is encrypted there, His signature. Messiah, Nazarene, Galilee, Shiloh, which is a Messianic phrase. Pharisee, Levites, Caiaphas, Annas. Passover, the man Herod, wicked Caesar perish, the evil Roman city, let him be crucified is there, the very quote they used. Moriah cross, um, and on it goes. Atonement lamp, bread, wine, Obed, Jesse, seed, water, Jonah, all red words. Now, there's more. That's just the warm-up. You'll find the phrase, the disciples mourn, encrypted there, and then you find 40 names encrypted in those 12 verses of the people that were at the foot of the cross. You got Peter, Matthew, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and two Jameses. There were three Jameses, but the brother of Christ did not become a believer until after the resurrection. And Simon, Thaddeus, Matthias, there were three Marys. One of them is encrypted and tangled with John, by the way. And Salome and Joseph. Now that's astonishing on the one hand, but tell you, let me tell you something that's even more astonishing. Some people would argue, well, that just happens by the frequency of alphabets in large texts. We're not talking large texts, we're talking about 12 verses, and we're talking about highly relevant accidents here. But there is a word that is composed of four Hebrew letters that are very high frequency which means that that particular word would be intrinsically, it would show up in any large Hebrew text because of the frequency of those four letters. And you would expect statistically to show up at least once in this 12 verses. It shows up. It's, it's conspicuous in its absence. And that name is Judas. 
Let's move on. In Isaiah 61, there's an interesting verse that Jesus himself reads when he opens his ministry. When he goes, when he's at the synagogue in Nazareth, in uh, Luke chapter 4, he is handed the book of Isaiah, and he finds this place, and he reads this to them. And when he reads it, he announces this is hereby fulfilled in your ears. Notice what he, here's what Jesus read. And you'll find this in Luke 4, and also it's, it's the passage here, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He shuts the book and declares, This day is this passage fulfilled in your ears. Now they subsequently get upset and try to throw him off a cliff. I won't go down all that path right now, but um, this is his mandate. Jesus opens his ministry announcing this mandate from Isaiah 61. But this is one of those lessons. The reason I'm making an emphasis is it's important for a lot of reasons, but it also I want you to pick up some methodology. Always pay attention to what's not said and pay attention to the subtleties because the truth is always in the details. You notice to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord in your English translation you find a comma, right? He stopped at the comma. He didn't read the rest of it. Well, I'm curious about the part he didn't read. If you go to Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, you'll discover this is what he read, except the part he omitted, and the day of vengeance of our God. And he goes on. You see, that part was not fulfilled in their ears while he stood there. Will it be? Absolutely. That comma, after the word Lord, has lasted for about 2,000 years. But it's coming. I think you may have seen, sometimes people put a bumper sticker on, Jesus is coming soon, and boy is he angry. <laughs> and it's a little irreverent perhaps, but it, it has a scriptural basis. Because he's coming in power to make, make the right th wrong things right, and so forth. I think that's instructive. Well, let me comment. You, uh, there, there's so much. We could spend uh, a whole year just studying Isaiah. I just, it's, it's very frustrating just to try to pick a few highlights. But there is something I, I, I do want you to, to understand. There are, I'll call them pseudo-scholars, uh, that claim there's two Isaiahs. And I remember when I was an uh, emerging teenager, very excited about the Bible, I ran into these doctrines, and they really set me back for a while. They, I didn't really buy them, and yet they bothered me. See, the idea is, is that Isaiah has been broken up into 66 chapters, just as we have 66 books in the Bible. And what you'll notice is the first 39 chapters have a certain style. And from chapter 40 on, it seems to shift rather noticeably, even in the translation. So some say the first 39 chapters really were written by what they call Isaiah 1. That was a different writer, a di an earlier writer. The subject of Isaiah 1 is the day of the Lord, and it focuses on Judah, Israel, the nations, and Jerusalem. Then there's a, a four-chapter historical addendum, study of Hezekiah and how they, they foolishly get themselves exposed to the threat of Babylon and so on. 
from chapter 40 through 66, they call, that was written by a different Isaiah. That was Isaiah 2, we'll call him. And that deals with the suffering servant and the consummation and so forth. People have noted that such a different style in the two, and so they say there were two Isaiahs. And that always bothered me. You know, you got people that think there's five different authors to the Torah, the so-called documentary hypothesis. All that is nonsense. All of that is easily shredded by good scholarship, doing a little homework. But you don't need to because Jesus authenticated the Torah. You, you can throw all that nonsense away. That's liberal foolishness, tragic undermining of people's faith. Well, the Deutero-Isaiah theory you'll find in many so-called Bible helps. And I never bought it, but it always bothered me because it lurks there all the time. And I am so grateful, so grateful for my friend John. Uh, the, the fallacy, by the way, can be argued from stylistic distinctives. It's refuted by careful study of style, images, vocabulary, and constructions which span both those books, both parts of the books, I should say. And people who argue there's two Isaiahs betray the fact that they don't understand the organization of the book. There's a, if they comprehend the whole design, you'll recognize it's a single book. But also, when it was translated into Greek, there are ascriptions to it and so forth. And you can also the, uh, see some try to argue that uh, one of the half the book was written after the exile and all that, because Isaiah, see, Isaiah predicts the destruction of Babylon. What makes that provocative? He's writing at a time that Babylon hasn't even risen, risen up as an empire yet. He's writing before Babylon conquers Assyria and becomes an empire. But he writes about how it's going to be destroyed. Well, they, they couldn't have been. They must have been written later. That's the, that's the, the skeptic's approach. Well, actually, there are, there are pre-exile quotations all through the Scripture. But there's also New Testament quotations. They're the ones that interest me. John, I'm so indebted to John. In John chapter 12, on verse 38, John quotes from Isaiah. In verse 38 of chapter 12, he says, That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord be revealed? Does that sound familiar to you? Sure. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 1, right? Well, a few verses later, he quotes from Isaiah again. He says, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. John is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the throne of God, and in that passage he, talk, he explains why some people don't believe. Because God has blinded their hearts, uh, blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, nor be converted, and I should heal them. These things, there's a reason, it gets, I won't go into the whole story there, but the point is, John is quoting then from Isaiah 6, verse 9 and verse 10, okay? We together so far? The exciting discovery is there is a verse 39 between verse 38 and 40. And I'm not being facetious. It's a treasure, because John says, after uh, quoting from Isaiah 2, if you will, Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. He quotes from Isaiah 53. 
he quotes from Isaiah 6 and links them as being written by the same Isaiah. So if these scholars that get their PhDs and H2SO4s from their seminary are correct, John is wrong. I bet on John, okay? See, this, this linkage of the two Isaiahs is precious to me because it's another example of several things. There is no heresy. There is no false doctrine. There is no weird off-the-wall idea that isn't anticipated in the Scripture. You'll find the subtlest little things tucked around, and you'll discover that they're planted there by the Holy Spirit to refute some nonsense that someone will come up with in the future. And this Deuteroisaiah thing is shredded by little, one little verse, verse 39 of John 12. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so grateful for that, because I remember the grief that I had as a teenager for many years till I discovered this, to put away this nonsense about the Deuteroisaiah. Well, let's look at the panorama of history. Of course, we've gone through this with Abraham all the way through and so forth, and we're now focusing on the exile and uh, literally up to the exile, the Babylonian captivity. And the major prophets start in the middle of the monarchy and go into the, but not through, the end of the Babylonian captivity, except for Daniel. Daniel does. And the minor prophets, of course, start earlier and go later. So the minor prophets, even though they're smaller books, cover a larger span of history. Now let's get down here and take a look at Jeremiah, who officiates, so to speak, in the final days of the, uh, the monarchy before it goes into uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so he's known as the weeping prophet. He was commissioned uh, in chapter 1, and then he has a bunch of prophecies that before the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 2 through 20 are undated, uh, aren't, aren't specific. And they're not, by the way, they're not necessarily in chronological order. There's a whole thing there I'll, I'll spare you right now. But uh, there are a handful of them that are specific and very da uh, dated for some reasons uh, that deal with the last four of uh, Judah's kings. You understand there were about nine different dynasties in the northern kingdom, but there's only one dynasty in the southern kingdom, the dynasty of David. We should need to understand that. You can't properly explain the history of any nation if you leave God out of the picture. Corrupt leadership inoculates the whole nation with moral poison, and the inward failure ultimately issues forth in national sin. And that's exactly the pro forma of, of the nation that Jeremiah is overseeing, and it's a tragic tale. And if you go through our commentaries, the ones that we did some years ago, you may even hear me weep on it. It's, it's a tough stuff because as you go through that, you can't help but see some parallels with our own nation. But in any case, uh, there are also prophecies from chapter 40 to 44, prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem where he's off, carried off to Egypt, continues writing. Then there's a whole bunch of prophecies included uh, upon the Gentile nations. Egypt, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Elam, Persia. He also talks about the doom of Babylon, and we'll talk more about that before it's all over. And of course, finally, Jerusalem is overthrown. The weeping prophet. He's one of the bravest, tenderest, most pathetic figures in history, because he was a patriot as well as a prophet. He cared about his nation.
and uh, that makes it painful. He ministered for over 40 years, about 80 years after Isaiah, under two kings, the most tragic national record ever written. And in 40 years, he never received a grateful response from anyone. Thrown in dungeons, prison, they felt his writings were treasonous, they didn't repent, obviously, and so forth. And one of the questions as you study Jeremiah, and I encourage you to do that, is to see if you think there's any parallels to our own predicament. I'll give you one quote from him that sort of captures his mood. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is his mood. This is, in fact, there's an, an acrostic poem added to his book called Lamentations. Basically an acrostic poem amplifying all this. There was another weeping prophet that wept over Jerusalem while riding a donkey. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus Himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent to thee! How often I would gather thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings! And ye would not! Behold, your house is left unto you desolate! For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Here you have the purpose of all history. How I would have gathered the children together as a hen gathered chickens. That was the purpose of all history. The tragedy of all history, ye would not. He came and they, he received, they received him not. But the triumph of all history is that he, there will be a day when they will say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, and they will achieve that destiny that God has specified all through the Old Testament and the New. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.